This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Liverpool Blood Red podcast with me, Ian Doyle. Joining me today is Connor Dunn. Hello, Connor. Hello, Ian. How are and you? And I'm okay. And I'm pleased to announce we've got a very special guest today. It's Michael Owen. Hi, Michael. Good day. How are you? I'm okay. Yourself? Good. Yeah, great. Thanks. Busy week? Very, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Been very busy. But um, we're coming to the end of it now in terms of the promotional stuff for the, uh, for the book, which was really good, really intriguing, and... Um, in some ups and downs, I think, think through the whole process, but really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll touch on some of them shortly, but uh, just going to have a quick word on your actual Liverpool career and just go through it and see what you know, your memories of that. And the, the first one is obviously that you were actually brought up an Everton fan and you ended up coming through at Liverpool's academy. Yeah, quite the opposite with my dad, really, because he was a, a Liverpool fan as a, as a boy and then ended up going to the Everton, uh, I was going to say academy, they didn't have academies back then, but... Um, you know, youth set up and he got into the first team, played a game or whatever for Everton and then uh, then had to go elsewhere to find um, regular football. So I was totally the opposite to my dad um, and of course supported Everton because when I said to my dad, you know, who did you play for when, when uh, you were young? It was, you know, teams like Bradford and Chester and Rochdale and Cambridge and Everton was the only one that I thought, oh, that sounds a good team and and hence I supported Everton but of course once I joined Liverpool and, and uh, felt part of the club then then uh, my loyalty switched I mean you, you obviously won the FA Youth Cup when you were at Liverpool but you made your debut against Wimbledon uh, what were your memories of that? Well I mean everything happened really quick for me I've, obviously I I left uh, the academy to go to Lillishall, um when I was 14 or 15 and that really turned me into a, a man I think you know from knowing how to hurt defences with speed and finishing ability, but actually to go there and then learn how to hold the ball up, how to defend, how to show people certain ways and what to, you know, just the, the sort of subtle nuances of, of being a centre-forward, I think, was was what I developed there at the age of 14 and 15. And then as soon as I came back to Liverpool, um, signed a YTS, everything happened so quick. I mean, I was in the B team, quickly into the A team, and then all of a sudden, you know, into the reserves, playing with all the, the great players that, that weren't in the team at the time. You know, if you didn't start in the first 11 um, in the league, then you were playing in the reserves. So it was a great experience for me and Cara and David Thompson, players like that, sort of three or four young kids playing with with six or seven top players. And uh, and again, just whistled through that. And I don't know how many reserve games I, I played, but my guess would be about 10. And then straight into the first team squad. What was it like trying to break into that first team and, you know, playing alongside the likes of Robbie Fowler, trying to displace them and, you know, these great players and breaking straight into that? Well, it was just the norm, really, at the time. You know, that's what I was. It was an aspiring young footballer that was probably um, on the lips of most people, really. I don't think I came as a surprise, so to speak. I was, you know, I was... Very good, very young, I think. Yeah. And of course, you know, everyone's career takes different twists in terms of their ability and when they peak and things like that. But I think if you look at my career right from the age of seven, right until I was maybe 23, I was probably always one of the best players um, about. And then, of course, things, you know, mainly through injuries and things like that, start to slip after that. But I was always primed for it, I think. You know, I was at Liverpool most of my life you know, just ready to get, and th- that doesn't mean it wasn't a huge experience, a huge uh, 
task really to get into the first team but everything I did was always with a view and it wasn't if and it was mainly when you know when are you and how quickly and and uh, and how quickly you're going to integrate into the team and, and score the goals but I think I was always confident I was going to do it what was it like in you know, such a young age as you say you kind of just exploded onto the scene you were everywhere so so young was that quite hard to handle or did you kind of just take that in your stride and that was just part and parcel of you know being such a good footballer well, I think the only reason I did what I did was because I could handle it. I mean, if it, if everything is too much for you, then you'd never be able to run out on the pitch and do what you do, I suppose. So, you know, that was the package that, that I was at the time, uh, mentally uh, probably very mature, physically probably quite immature. But uh, of course, I had different attributes that were still, you know, um, quite potent weapons at, at first team level. So I think that was just me. Um as I say, everyone's different. You know, you you watch park football, you know, on the 14s or something and some people have, are shaving already and they're just too good for everybody else because they're bigger and faster and stronger. But then again, you can sometimes see a bit of quality in a more immature player. And as I say, I had attributes that, that made me um, far, not, not readily available and readily sort of a man at, at 17, but certainly mentally I was strong enough to cope and of course, that mental attitude that I had probably enabled me to score some goals that not you probably wouldn't do if you were 27. Yeah. So, I mean, I know for a fact, you know, when I look at the goal against Argentina or goal against Newcastle, the third, you know, running at players, beating players, being cold in front of there's certain attributes that you just can't really possess when you're older. You know, that fearless attitude that you know disdain that you've got for people on the pitch you know in a right way of course very respectful of it but and I just had all those as a as a kid um and again if you could bottle that and take it through your career then you'd obviously have the most amazing career but um all those attributes I had were obviously conducive to, to coming on the scene and, and making a bang I mean as, as you mentioned it was pretty meteoric in those those early years it culminated in some ways in the 2000-2001 season with the treble and I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying you didn't. You were on the bench for the League Cup final, weren't you? I think. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, um, and then it obviously ends with the FA Cup final, which there aren't many players who've, who's had an FA Cup final named after them, but you happen to be one of them. Oh well, that was a special day. It was, um, it was amazing. You know, if I could live, <laughs> if I could live one day again, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this. <laughs> so I had four kids and, and a marriage and everything else, but um, no, if I could live one day again, it would be the FA Cup final. I mean. With 10 minutes to go, were you, what were you thinking? Because it was obviously losing 1-0 at that point. Well, I knew... I mean, I came into the I came into the game red-hot form. I mean, I was banging in goals left, right and centre, really, in the half a dozen games leading up to the cup final. And I just... And during the game, I just you know knew I could get a chance. I would score. I was in that rich vein of form. And obviously, I had to wait a long time. And of course, once 70 minutes comes, 80 minutes go, oh, you start thinking, we're just not going to... You know, Arsenal were brilliant team at the time you know in and around the invincible era so many good players but it was one of those things I almost you know look at an, 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 an analogy that's nearly right um, when it's like a heavyweight boxer just on the ropes getting beaten up all but you've still not gone down and as soon as you hit back once I just felt the whole you know Arsenal team almost drained and when I scored that goal I've never I've always been confident in my life. I've always had self-belief and always thought, you know, give me a chance, I'll score. But I've never felt a knowing like I did after that first goal. As I'm jogging back to the, the halfway line, 
I just knew I was going to score again and we were going to win it. And I was remember looking up at the scoreboard thinking, have I got time to do it now or am I going to do it in, in, in extra time? <laughs> that was, it was not if, it was just which one. So when Patrick Berger puts and, that ball down, yeah, you're thinking just we're in here. Yeah. Well, I just, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's almost like an out-of-body experience in a way when you're just so high on confidence and so buoyed and so, you know, and you feel as well added to that, the opposition have gone basically mentally You've just shot them, even though you're still drawing, just the way the game went. And I just, it was just, as I say, it was a real strange feeling, one that I've come close to, but never really had before. Just an absolute knowing that it's going to happen again. It's just when. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole day was just, as I say, if I could live one day again, it would be that one. And then there was the UEFA Cup as well after that. That was a bit of a crazy game. Well, it was just an amazing year, wasn't it? I mean, we played so many games. We had such a great team spirit. Um and I think at the time, of course, if you look back now and think, okay, League Cup, FA Cup, Europa League, it's an amazing achievement. But back then it was, it really was, I mean, because everybody wanted to win all these trophies. There was no you know, resting players for certain competitions. I mean, look at the teams that we played in that uh, UEFA Cup run. It was, it was amazing. Barcelona, Roma, Porto. I mean, it's Champions League teams right the way through. Um, so, yeah, and of course, Liverpool, and I think Gerard Hooley in particular, but Liverpool have obviously got the history of, of European competition and, and to get us back in that sort of uh, arena was a, a massively important thing, I think, for everybody. But in particular, Gerard Houllier, I think if you had asked all the lads, what do you want to win? If you could only pick one, then everyone would have said FA Cup just because the majority of the lads were, were British and, and things like that. But it was the one that Gerard Houllier was desperate for. Unfortunately, we didn't have to. We didn't have to choose out of, of any of them because we won the lot. So it was uh, it was just a, a magic year. Yeah, as you say, absolutely incredible year and for you personally. You know, scoring goals against Roma, scoring goals against Barcelona. I think you were the top scorer in Europe that year, and obviously that culminated in you winning the Ballon d'Or. Um, how was that? Because that is just an incredible achievement. Well, yeah, of course it was. It wasn't a, a special year, a special season, particularly obviously at club level. But of course, at international level as well, that was the year that, well, basically it was Liverpool <laughs> players again, wasn't it? But we we beat Germany 5-1 and, and I managed to score a hat-trick there. And so it was just one of those years that just continued to uh, to produce. It was it was amazing. Goals flowed and it was a it was a great season. And as you say, culminated in, I remember because we were playing Roma, I think again, the next season. Anyway, I just remember being in the, in the dressing room and Gerard had been taken ill some months before. And we were preparing to, to play um, in Italy. And I remember Phil Thompson, they had a big thing at the time, mobile phone, no mobile phones, you know, don't even look at them, keep them, leave them on the coach, you know. And I saw Phil Thompson with a mobile phone in his hand. I thought, that's strange. And he sort of called me into, into the corridor outside the dressing room. He said, the gaffer wants to speak to you. And I hadn't heard from him for ages. Of course, he was going through the, the bad illness. And, uh, and he mentioned it and he said, you've won the, uh, the Ballon d'Or. I wanted to tell you before the game. And, if I'm honest, at the time, I was delighted. Of course I was, you know, that's great. But I was just zoned in at the time into next game. You know, we've got to win, we've got to win. It was just sort of, it was a relentless pursuit of of winning, scoring, trying to win the next trophy. And as soon as he told me, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's, yeah, thanks, boss. And I, it was only until later on he actually said to me, you don't realise what you've won here, do you? And I was, no, I'm proud. I'm honestly, Gaffer, I'm pleased. And he was like, no, you don't realise. Yeah what an achievement this is. And and to be honest, he was dead right. I didn't. 
and I picked up the trophy. I remember picking up at Anfield in front of the fans and almost I couldn't wait to just give it them back and come on, shoe off the pitch. I need to, you know, I need to score here. We've got a game about to... It was just that type of attitude at the time. But of course, I'm a bit older and wiser now. And of course, it, it does take pride of place at home. Yeah, I was going to say, do you rank that as kind of one of your best personal achievements or best personal accolades because you're up against the likes of Figo, Raul, Zidane and they are great, you know, ranked as the, some of the greatest players of all time. Yeah, well, listen, you, ne- you never get a, ba- a bad Ballon d'Or sort of uh, <laughs> lineup, do you? Of I mean, course. It's, it's, of course, always going to be a, a star-studded um, list of players and I've got the list saved on my phone as a picture, <laughs> you know, just to, uh, when I get a bit down sometimes, you can have a look at that Very and think, good. well, that was the year when uh, when I beat all those players too. But no, it was uh, it's special. And, and of course, now I guess it's a bit bigger than it ever has been now because we didn't really celebrate it as English people. It was only when I moved to Madrid where I really got a sense of, you know, people would just say, here's a Ballon d'Or. And it was, it was almost like you've got that title and it was, you know, revered around Europe. Because not many people from England have ever won it. It was... Uh, I, when I was growing up, I'd never really heard of it, to be honest. I'd heard of World Player of the Year and European Player of the Year, things like that, but I really take loads of notice. But I think it was going to Madrid when I absolutely thought, wow, this is... And I think now it's, you know, a little bit more, you know, ingrained in, in our culture in terms of people winning it. But I still think if you're in Italy or Spain, I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's the be-all and end-all, but it's a massive, massive event, certainly still bigger than over here in Britain. I mean, after Gerard Houllier came Rafael Benitez and then a few months later you were gone from Liverpool. I mean, in your book you explained that it didn't really make much difference with the new manager coming in, but there was something Jamie Carragher had said that stuck in your mind, especially when Real Madrid came calling. Yeah, I mean, when my agent phoned me and said, listen, there's been a, there's been a call from Real Madrid and they'd like to sign you, I was, I was in the same room as Carragher at the time. And uh, listen, I would share all my secrets with Carragher. Me and him were, you know, were... were as he mates, so to speak. And uh, and as soon as I put the phone down, we both just looked at each other and he knew what had, was just been said and he just said, don't do it, don't go. You know, Raul, Ronaldo, Morientes, you won't get in the team. You know, and of course that was red rag to a bull. My, my mindset at that time was, you know, not who, but don't you worry, I'm, I'll be better than all those type of attitude. And it's horrible to say, you know, you feel big-headed saying it, but unless you actually tell it how it is, then you can't put any of these sort of stories into perspective. So that was me at the time. Just if he had said, yeah, go, <laughs> I'd probably think, no, no, no. But I was just all for proving everyone wrong all the time type of thing. And again, that probably, that attitude gets you to where you get to. So, um, but no, it was, uh, I just, I don't know. It's in the book. It's, uh, it's, it was one of those things for days. It was like, yeah, I probably should give it a go. No, I can't. Yes, I should. No, I can't. And it was just like that for so long and it was becoming draining. And I think what I convinced myself, the the bottom line is I convinced myself eventually thinking Ian Rush went to Juventus and he came back. And if I go, I can always come back. I sort of, I just, I, I told myself that, obviously I was wrong, but I just, uh, I managed to convince myself that if you say no, then you know, all those great players out there, new experience, new lifestyle, just something to try just so you can look back on your career and think, actually, I'd give it a go out there and succeeded, failed, whatever it was. But I thought if I say no, will you ever regret it? Will I be sat here today saying, do you know what, at some point in my life, I could have gone to Real Madrid and played in the Galacticos team and, and all the rest of it. So eventually 
after a lot of to and fro and I thought, sod it. I've got to give it a go. And uh, I almost spoke to Rick Parry and said, listen, I will come back, won't I? And we were almost, yeah, yeah, definitely. Both of us were saying, yeah, it's just a matter of time, so to speak. But of course, things take a twist and all the rest of it and you're never quite sure what's going to happen. Time moves on, you know, new players come to Liverpool, you know, different opportunities arise for everybody, I suppose. And and uh, the dream that I, I, I'd almost sort of planned in my head never quite materialised, materialised sadly. Yeah, as you say, obviously you really wanted to come back to Liverpool. Um, quite Never quite happened. I think it's quite a story about the night that you signed for Newcastle and there was kind of Liverpool interest at that time. The bid was higher. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I always thought it was, uh, I was going back to Liverpool. Um, I, in the pre-season, just before we, we started um, back at Real Madrid, um, we had learned that, that Liverpool was interested in, in obviously taking me back. And I was obviously interested in coming back because I had done what I wanted to do. I had a great time in Spain, but of course the Premier League was, was what I loved and being in England was what I loved and certainly being at home and hopefully at my home club was, was what I wanted. But just as I think we, we, I mean, we met at um, Bruno Chirou's house because um, he was away at the time. So, and my sister was mates with, with his wife. So we thought we'd have a real quiet meet. Obviously if I came back to Melwood, things would have been, alarms would have yeah. been raised. So, so we, managed to uh, sneakily have a meeting in a in an empty house and um everything was just brilliant you know me and Rafa were absolutely fine Rick Parry and and my agent absolutely everything sorted and I went back to Madrid almost floating on air you know just thinking I'm coming back and uh sadly as soon as I landed we had a game I think a preseason game or something in a few days and I was in my hotel room and um Florentino Perez the the president of Madrid knocked on my door and and said, we've just uh, received a bid. And he came in and just said, we've just received a bid that we're happy to accept. And I was just waiting for him to say Liverpool. And I was thinking, oh, this is just like clockwork. It's perfect. And he said, and it's um, so it's up to you. You can either go to Newcastle or you can stay here where we want to keep you. But if you want to go, then... And I just couldn't believe what, what he had said. I mean, I had, had no idea that Newcastle had made this bid and of course put 16 million down when I thought, you know, we were going to get a deal done with Liverpool for, for the eight million that Liverpool had sold me for. And uh, that was that. I remember just looking at him in the eyes and saying, well, I'm I'm not going. <laughs> I'll stay then. He said, oh, okay, no problem. Oh, that's fine. And uh, of course, that started a, a week or two of prolonged poker play, let's say, with, with me just saying, well, it's Liverpool or nothing. And I knew they probably wanted to take some cash for me because they wanted Sergio Ramos at the time from Sevilla. And... Um, so I knew that they were happy selling me, but I was obviously trying to hold my cards close to my chest saying, well, it's Liverpool or nothing for me until it got right down to the wire. And I was obviously speaking to Rick Parry at this point and, and Rick said, listen, we can't bid a penny over 8 million. That's, you know, that's the final sort of offer type of thing. And I knew then that 16 million Newcastle, they're never ever, and they were adamant, they were never ever going to sell me to Liverpool. So that was that. I had a decision. It was Newcastle or Madrid. Um, and I decided for a lot of different reasons with the World Cup at that end of that year. Um, of course, uh, Madrid had bought Rubinho as well. And I was just thinking, am I going to play much? I need to be playing. I'm in the guts of my career, so to speak. I need to be playing. So I decided that I'd go to Newcastle, but on the proviso that I had it in my contract to, to be able to come to Liverpool after the first season in the summer. Um, and I was just hoping, obviously, that Liverpool might be able to 
I've raised the funds in the meantime or something. I don't know, but I was just hoping that was, and that was almost a compromise in my mind again. That I thought, okay, I'll go to Newcastle on, on that basis. But of course, you know, do my knee in the world cup and do this and do that. And, you know, it just never, never happened after that. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. And there's a, a bit in the book you talk about a family vote as well. Um, quite an interesting story. What, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I use the word vote. I mean, when I came back and of course it was it was narrowed down so you can either go to Newcastle or, or, you, or stay at Real Madrid. Of course it's always going to be your decision at the end of the day, but none of them were ideal and yeah. that's the problem, you know, and that's nothing against anyone. My idea was Liverpool and that's, you know, not because I'm doing an interview here in Liverpool, that's just because, <laughs> you know, and I don't make any apology. And do you know what? I don't get how other people can't understand it in many ways. I mean, there was so much that came out of the book and, you know, I just don't understand how people can understand that, that, course that was my first choice and and no matter what happened then it was going to be my second choice you know or third choice or, or whatever it was going to be and that could have been any team it could have been West Ham it could have been Nottingham Forest it could have been Tramier it could have been anyone you know it, whoever it was they were never going to be where I wanted to go and you could say well it was always going to fail then if you had that attitude that you know but defy anyone to have preferences you know it's uh it's just a natural thing to to happen but anyway sadly um I couldn't get back to Liverpool and then it was right come on we need to make the best of you know you're still in your mid-20s you've still got a life you've still got a career you've still got to play football and play to the best of your ability and that's where my career took me then I've just have to try to stay at the top level and and um some of the decisions after that were, were always with that in mind yeah. You mentioned England, the goals against Argentina, the goals against uh, against Germany. I mean, <laughs> I'm just going to quickly jump in and say, to people my age, that goal against Argentina, I was five years old in a pub. It's the whole reason I support Liverpool. It's the whole reason I love football. So, <laughs> so it's your fault, basically. Yeah. Um, but when you were at Liverpool, maybe some of the critics, well, the criticism perhaps was that it looked to some people who were more bothered about England than Liverpool. And I, personally, I don't think that's right. But you, I mean, you must. You, you'd, yeah. There are there are those people who did say that at the time, well, only because of the, on. only because of the image. That, yeah, exactly. How how on earth? I mean, listen, I was a I'm like any other kid, wasn't I? I mean, put me on a football pitch, I was at my happiest. I'd run through a brick wall for for anything, anyone to score a goal. I mean, my issue, obviously, and when when you look back, you know, t- to be honest, now you know, forty thirty nine. I mean, it doesn't really matter now. You know, yes, you you would love to be remembered for everything that was absolutely perfect. But, you know, it's football at the end of the day. We all have ups, downs and everything else. But, you know, I won the golden boot when I was 17 in the Liverpool team. You know, I won the golden boot the next year when I was 18 in the Liverpool team. I mean, what more can I do as a kid? (laughs) You know, and then I've gone away with England. I didn't even expect to be in the squad at Christmas. You know, it was my first ever season in the Premier League. And by Christmas, I'm scoring a load of goals. So I get into the England squad in, in February and then get, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, he's going to go to the World Cup, this young kid. And then what do you want me to, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a good football player at that age. Of course, I had a, I scored a, a couple of goals in the World Cup, one that was memorable. 
But I came back. It's not then, oh no, but then I downed tools and it's all about it. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I was scoring goals for everyone. It was just, and the thing is, I guess, that I made my name to the probably the world at such a young age in a white kit and everybody mm. probably thought England's Michael Owen from around the world. But as I say, if I had done nothing in a little, seven, you find a 17-year-old that comes into a team like and is, is a golden boot winner when you've got the Shearers, the Ian Wrights, the Van Nistelrooy's or the Henri or whoever else was, you know, the Les Ferdinands, the Chris Suttons, the Robbie Fowlers, the Stan Collymores, the Andy Coles, the Dwight Yorks. I was golden boot winner at 17 against all those. And I didn't, you know, and I was more interested in, I mean, it's just, I, I, it's just absolutely ridiculous that anyone could ever say anything like that. But it's, it's fine. It's cool. It's, it's not a problem, but I mean, it's just totally, totally um, missing the point, I'd say. Yeah. So taking you back a little bit, you know, you said you had your phone call from Julier um, telling you, you won the Ballon d'Or. What was your kind of relationship with Gerard like? What was your relationship with Roy Evans and Rafa towards the end as well? Well, Roy Evans, of course, I'm coming through as a kid. So, I mean, I just was in awe of everybody. Um, anything to do with the club, whether it be the fans, the, the manager, the players, it was just, you know, I'm a 17-year-old. And, of course, I knew I was capable within myself, but that doesn't stop me being a bit starstruck. And, you know, even at Lillashaw, I had all pictures of, of all the team on the wall. You know, Robbie Fowler's and, and all the rest of it, McManamum's, you know, so I was still a fan, you know, I was still as much as I had a, an ability to, you know, yes, be a fan on one minute, but yes, not be overawed and thinking everyone's too good for me on the other, um, which is quite a, a strange attitude to have, I guess, but that's just the way I was wired. Um, so everyone was, I was in awe of everyone, Roy Evans, I mean, was the manager, of course, really helped me, gave me my chance, believed in me, watched me as a coming through um, as a kid, showed interest and, you know, trusted me at the end of the day. So absolutely loved Roy and was gutted when, when uh, he eventually left. Um, and again, though, uh, Gerard Houllier was, was brilliant, you know, caring person. I mean, genuinely nice fella. Um, brought the team and the, the the club really up to the modern modern game. I think because I think British teams in general were still probably supping pints and going out and being a little bit um, not professional, let's say. But that was just the norm. That wasn't you know the lads being rebels or anything. It was just that's what happened in those days. And I think Arsene Wenger probably down at Arsenal. All of a sudden, we were seeing these players running faster for longer, never getting injured, and you're thinking, wow, what are they, what are they? Yeah. What are they taking down there? I mean, it's just frightening. So I think Gerard came through at a great time, sort of almost brought us up um, into the new era of football and was great with me, you know, and my family and everyone. He was just a, a nice, caring fella. And I think you could put Gerard in, in any business and they would succeed because he's just, he knows what it makes to, to make everyone tick. Of course, he never played the game. So, you know, the, the subtle little bits, he could never tell me how to finish or tell Cara how to read a, a, a through ball or tell Stevie G how to put a ball onto a sixpence. Of course he couldn't, but he could galvanise a group. He could give us aims and targets and and tactically he he knew what he was doing. You know, he was a decent judge of a player. So he was, he was you know, great influence on my career. And, and of course, Benitez, I mean, I was only there for pre-season training under him. Um but I know an awful lot about him and spoke to a lot of people about him, you know, the likes of Stevie and Cara and 
people. And of course, Rafa's unique, you know, um, would certainly not have the personal touch of a Roy Evans or a Gerard Houllier. Um, not sure if he ever said well done to Stevie or Cara or anything. But um, of course, proven himself as a great coach. And, and uh, I mean, with all due respect to, to win the Champions League, with the squad of players at the time was just one of the great feats of, of the modern day game. I mean, because of course, you know, we've seen Liverpool probably go from strength to strength since and, and have much better teams. I mean, the team currently, you'd say is the best team we've seen for a long, long time. But with that, with the team that, that he had at the time, it was just a phenomenal achievement to win the Champions League. Would you ever consider management yourself? I did consider it. Um, and do you know what? I wake up, some days and I would I would love to do it but realistically I've toyed with it for a long time now and I just think realistically it's it's not going to happen I mean with all due respect and again it's hard to talk about certain things if you if you're going to be honest sometimes you you come across as a you know as arrogant or a big head and things like that but it's very difficult to talk about certain things if you're not going to put it into context of, of where you are and where you think and and again, I, I say this with total respect to to, uh, to lower league teams, to conference teams and things like that. But if I was to get a, offered a job now, I mean, realistically, you tell me, I mean, where would I get? It would be a, it would be a, a lower yeah. team and we wouldn't get a championship team or a Premier League team or anything else like that. So, and again, I'll state again, because I just don't want to be seen as arrogant or ignorant or big headed, but I've got no idea of any players, conference players. I wouldn't know who's in my team. I wouldn't know who I'm playing against, the styles of play. I occasionally go and watch Chester. It's just, it's not the game. It's not the sport that I know. I mean, the goalkeeper gets the ball and the two centre-halves split. Full-backs push on, sit in midfield to come and get the ball and we play out from the back. That's like what I did at Liverpool, Real Madrid, Man United, every good team. But at the lower level, you you know, full-backs probably six foot seven. Um, they come in tight, right, goalkeeper, you whack it, flick on. If you lose the ball, you know, second ball's midfield. It's just like, it's a different sport. And how am I going to be successful? Not knowing any players, not knowing any tactics, not knowing anything. I might be an absolutely brilliant manager. I might be absolutely useless, but you can never, ever tell from from that. And loads of people have gone before me. Sheringham's, the Chris Sorton, loads of people have gone in and managed at a level where they can just get in and all of a sudden, everyone thinks all these managers are useless now. I'm just thinking, it's impossible. How can you be a good manager when you know nothing? You know, I'd have a, I think, I'd have a great chance if I was, you know, given that type of club that I know about and that I can understand the footballers and the way they think and the way they work and try to help that way. But realistically, it's just not going to happen. So why am I going to waste sort of five years of my life getting all my badges, trying to, find a job trying to do this and then after five games I could be out and this nice life that I built for myself now I work a bit on television I've got my stables I've got four kids I live at home all these nice things that I've worked so hard for I could just give all that up and be out the door in, in yes, five fair, games yeah. so I mean when I put it like that I don't know why I still think to myself <laughs> <laughs> it's a possibility because it's just a it's just a nightmare isn't it really it's not really I've, I've said for some time our country's not really set up to produce our own players at the moment or certainly over the last decade and our own managers we're, we're buying them in from far and uh, when we've got good ones under our nose but 
we find it hard to sort of promote our own in this country. We'll finish then with some quick fire questions if you don't mind. Uh, first thing, three favourite goals for Liverpool? If you can get it to three, that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Maybe one then? Well, <laughs> FA Cup final winner, probably. I mean, I've scored better for Liverpool, but I've not scored any goal before, during or after that has just given me that rush of adrenaline that that, that one gave me. Yeah, so and let's I think, narrow it down to one. Because we I could know, be here all day. I, know, yeah. <laughs> I think I know what the next answer is going to be. Favourite game? That one, yeah, yeah. FA Cup final, yeah. Um, best player played alongside doesn't necessarily have to be Liverpool, although it can be. Well, I've always said that in technically, um, somebody that was just born to be with a football and just a joy to watch was Zidane. I mean, he was just a, oh, he was just amazing, absolutely amazing. Poetry in motion. Um, but if I was going into battle tomorrow, and I needed, and I was picking my team, the first person I'd pick um, would be Steven Gerrard. I mean. We were together since we were dots, you know, I think, I can't even remember when it was, 10 years old or something like that at the academy. And every week it would be Gerard six assists, Michael Owen six goals, <laughs> Liverpool six, such and such, nil. And it was just that for like six, seven years training. We'd be playing together. We were just, I think he knows my game and I know his game more so than any other, you know, partnership um, out there probably. We were just together for so long and, and then he developed, I mean, of course I came, we, we played in every team together, but then I shot forward really around the 15, 16, 17 time when he was going through a real growth spurt. But believe it or not, he couldn't, he had my injuries um, sort of five years before me. He couldn't jog without pulling a, a groin or something at the time. And, his, and I was taller than him, believe it or not. You know, at <laughs> 10 or 11, I was taller than him. And then he just shot up and his body, his muscles couldn't keep up with his skeleton in, in many ways. And he was just pulling muscles all the time. So I shot ahead, started playing in the first team for a year or so. And, and he sort of came a bit later then. But of course, he finished his career much stronger than me. I was sort of petering out. Um, but wow, his attributes are just... I can't think of one thing that he couldn't do. You know, he's brilliant in the air, brilliant tackler, brilliant passer, unbelievable pace, strength you know, attitude, leadership qualities. He was just everything. And uh, yeah, it was just a pleasure to play alongside him. And I'd hope that he would say the same about me for, for so long. Who was then, was there anybody that was perhaps more skillful in training than Gerard or Zidane? Was anybody at Liverpool who perhaps shone out, shone during training that maybe didn't quite do it in the game, game to game? Because um, we, had, we had Emil Heskey in here the other week and he said Vladimir Smitzer. Yeah, Vladimir was... And lovely, neat, tidy player. I mean, I think a lot of what you see in a footballer, you see in training every day. I know some people say, oh, he was rubbish in training and then he was great in games. But there's not low, not many people I used to think that about. There were some people that forgetting skill, because skill is, yeah, every, it, it's, it is important. But when you get onto a pitch, you know, all that, nice little flicks and great little turns and that that you can do in a short, small-sided games and the five-a-side, they half become irrelevant. You know, it's it's all about the people that rise to the occasion that have got mental strength in abundance. It's all go through the pain barrier. And of course, you need a load of ability as well. But sometimes, you know, training is so false compared to a game. You know, you've got massive spaces. You're having to defend big areas and, and sprint. You know, in training, you're playing a little 18-yard box game, 20 people. And it's just all a manic, 
you know, and you, okay, you see people with a nice touch and whatever, but that's not real football. It's not real 11-a-side football. So, you know, the real players that I played with were brilliant in training and yeah. brilliant on a, on a pitch, to be honest. Uh, was there any particular player that you learnt more from than anyone else? Um, well, unbeknowingly, probably, again, Stevie Gerrard, because we just were on a wavelength, was probably ahead of a lot of other people coming right through. Um, you know, but I did play with some other, as I mentioned, Zidane. I mean, I know people probably want to close their ears, but someone like Paul Scholes, but for England and uh, Manchester United, you know, again, playing on a different playing field to, to most people, just way ahead of the game. You could make him look bad if you weren't, you know, switched on. You know, he wouldn't even be looking at you. You'd be, I mean, the master of disguise, you know, he'd be giving you balls around the corners and he wouldn't have even looked at you and he'd be whipping it into your feet and that. And you think, you know, if you're on your heels, you'd, you, you'd, he'd be giving the ball away, but he'd just seen a picture 10 seconds before and, and, and there it is. It's uh, so, you know, the likes of Gerard Scholes, they were, they were on different wavelengths to most. Did you have a favourite strike partner? Of the ones that you had? Well, again, I played with some amazing players. Um, my favourite, I'd have to say, Emil Heskey, because he brought, brought the best out in me. Um, when I look back at all my great times at, at Liverpool, um, England, a lot of the time I was playing up front with him. I mean, with all due respect to him, I played with better strikers. You know, I played with the Brazilian Ronaldo. Don't get many better than that. I mean, Shearer, Rooney, Fowler, um, just to name a few off the top of my head, there's, I've probably missed a few. Um, but yeah, but Emil brought the best out of me. And I think opposites attract in life, in, and it's the same in centre-forward partnerships. We just did everything opposite, which made us sort of fit like a glove together. Um, do you think Liverpool could win the league under Jurgen Klopp? Of course they can. <laughs> yeah. And that's not just... You know, I'm. I support Liverpool, but of course, I'm. A, I work on the television now, so I, tr I try to just give an opinion exactly how it is, and you know whether I support Liverpool or not. I mean, you'd be a fool to think they couldn't. I mean, they were one point away from it last season. Of course, they can. Yeah. Do you they're... think they will? Oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah, I do think they will under Jurgen's time there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely say that they've got a great chance. Um, will they this season? I totally see it as a toss of a coin. I mean, you know, as much as we all want it and, and Liverpool are absolutely playing to their peak potential at the moment, there is that small matter and whether you like them or not, Manchester City are simply amazing as well. And, you know, we can all guess, can't we? We can all say, yeah, I think Man City this year and then at the end of the year, we'll oh, say, I told you I was right. But really, no one knows. It, we're talking about two of the best teams the Premier League has ever seen. I mean, these two teams now, I'm putting up there with with the Invincibles. I'm putting up with uh, there with the United treble team and uh, the Chelsea team under Mourinho. They're probably the best three that we've seen in the Premier League. And I think these two are are now in that top five. Whether you say best, second best, whatever, but they're in that top five in my opinion. And anyone that's definitely City or definitely Liverpool is talking rubbish. I mean. It's one of those two. I mean, it just depends. Key injury, you know, a big game, whatever happens, you know, it's it's the slip of a, you know, anything. It could, anything. It was one point last year. Both teams won their last dozen games or whatever it was. It was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And 
brilliant to watch for everybody. Um, and it could be exactly the same this year. It'll be very close. Final question then. You played for Liverpool, Real Madrid, Newcastle, Manchester United. We'll gloss over that. Stoke and mm -hmm. England. You've got one game left. You can play for any of those teams. Who are you going to pick? That's a stupid question. And I need to answer that. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, of course it's Liverpool, you know. I had my best years there. Uh, I played my best there. I was at my fittest, my happiest, you know, healthiest, all these, all these things. But, you know, that's, um, it's great memories for me. But of course as well, you, you know, you hear other people and what they think and what they say. So you, you try to just be honest and open and, and everything else. Certainly don't want to be seen as, you know, I don't know, something that I'm not, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, deep down, they're all the reasons that that I uh, I would pick Liverpool. You know, it was it was it always was my team. I came through the ranks. You know, deep rooted friendships there within the club. I'd like to think a lot of fans have got some great memories of me, and I've certainly got some great memories. But it comes to an end for everyone. You know, whether you're the biggest idol of of um, of the cop or or not, whether you're a Steven Gerrard, at some point, you know, something disappointment will happen or you you have to move or you have to retire or it great things always come to an end and sadly mine came to an end a little bit earlier than the likes of the Gerrards and the Carragers but still I I've got all the memories so that's uh, that keeps me going hey, Michael thank you very much for your time uh, for all of our listeners Michael's book reboot is out now available from all good bookshops and and online as well don't forget um, thank you very much for listening and join us soon yeah been my pleasure thank, thank you thank you You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.